Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode three of the Bad Philosopher podcast. On this episode, we're going to be talking about existential risks. What is an existential risk, you might ask? Well, at its most basic level, an existential risk is an event that results in the extinction of humanity. Maybe the most Hollywood example of this would be something like a gigantic asteroid impact, say, an asteroid that's 10 kilometers in diameter, hitting the surface of the Earth, sort of like the one that took out the dinosaurs 65 million years ago, or so they say. In preparation for this episode, I decided to watch the new movie Don't Look Up the other day. And this is sort of a satirical film about two astronomers who discover a comet on a collision course with Earth, and they try to warn the world about it and try to prevent it from happening. All in all, I didn't love this film. I mean, it was kind of boring at a lot of points, um, but I also think that's kind of the point of it. Again and again, the characters in this movie keep getting distracted by the sort of menial things that are going on around them and on social media. For example, they get distracted by a celebrity breakup, and they get distracted by a bunch of internet memes that start popping up after a TV show appearance. There's also a lot of political maneuvering behind the scenes going on. We see competing ideologies dominating these narratives and changing public opinion. We see internet culture wars between those who believe in the comet and those who don't believe in the comet. It's this weird commentary on the present moment we find ourselves in. And that's sort of what the film ends up being about. We spend so much time on this interpersonal and celebrity and social media drama than to a very small amount of time on the actual crisis that the film is predicated on. In our culture, we are so strange right now with how fake everything is, how politicized everything is, and how much media manipulation is going on through all avenues. It's like reality is no longer considered real, it's now become this sort of spectacle. Reality and truth is now something that's argued about and politicized. We spend so much time debating our shared reality. One group thinks one thing, one group thinks the opposite, and both dislike each other because of it. We have competing narratives. Everyone's being boxed into their own little echo chambers and creating their own little versions of reality within those echo chambers. And then, out in the world, these differing narratives clash because they can't be reconciled. Because there's so much untruth out there that they can't be. And this is what Don't Look Up is commenting on in a satirical and blatantly in-your-face sort of way. It's like we can no longer think for ourselves at all. The world is becoming so complex, and all of our multitude of narratives are being spun up to simplify things from preconceived points of view. Instead of embracing the complexity we find ourselves in, we're led astray by various fictions. Instead of figuring things out for ourselves or simply living with uncertainty, our society is manufacturing truths that everyone is expected to follow. Instead of just being comfortable in uncertainty and complexity, we're being told that we have to choose a side. It's like it's some battleground that we have to go to war on. I mean, just look at the United States-Russia conflict for an example of this. We're all in this paradigm of escalation. Russia wants border security. The U.S. wants to maintain power and influence in Europe through NATO. Both are poking and prodding at one another, and the countries in the middle, like Ukraine, are suffering because of it. And how does one say what's right or wrong here? Probably depending on where you live in the world, 
you would say that it's blatantly obvious who the good and the bad guys are. This is a fundamental break in reality. We've got two separate narratives playing out. But in reality, the truth is somewhere in between. Both nations are behaving poorly. Both are behaving in their own self-interest. And both are refusing to back down. They can't back down. To back down in a geopolitical conflict is to show weakness, to lose influence. That's geopolitical suicide. And so the horns here are locked, and the rest of the world just has to wait and see. Do things escalate further, or do they fizzle out? This isn't a war of ideology, this is a war of competing narratives, and a war for power and influence in the world. Anyways, I don't want to spend too much time on geopolitical issues. I do just want to jump back into Don't Look Up and discuss what it says about our modern society in some greater detail. And before we proceed, I just want to give a spoiler warning. If anyone doesn't want to get any spoilers from this movie, um, jump ahead to about the 31-minute mark or so of this podcast. Something that happens pretty early on in the film is this blending of the real with the unreal. When the two protagonist astronomers discover this 10-kilometer-wide comet on a collision course with Earth with only six months' warning, they get on the phone, and they call the Planetary Defense Coordination Office, and the film here makes it blatantly clear that this is a real office that actually exists. It shows the real logo. So right away, we've got this mixing of the real with the unreal, where we're watching a fiction, but it's being brought into the real world, or it's bringing real-world elements in to tell its story. And things do take a sort of a surreal turn from here. The two protagonists get on the phone with the both the head of the Planetary Defense Coordination Office and the head of NASA, and it sort of becomes this don't panic call. When one of the protagonists asks bluntly, isn't this an extinction-level event? The head of NASA responds, brushing them off, and says, well, let's not be dramatic here. So after this call, um... In the film, an emergency meeting gets set up at the White House, and the protagonists are hurried on to an emergency military flight to get them to Washington to explain what they've found to the President of the United States. And then once they get there, they get sidelined by the President and her aides, basically a hurry-up-and-wait scenario. Hurry-up-and-get-here-now, wait, because what you say isn't really that important. It's made clear here that the president is more concerned about a scandal with her Supreme Court nominee than she is with the potential end of the world. The meeting ends up happening the next day, and the administration is not too thrilled about what they hear. Not the fact of the possible extinction of humanity from this comment, but sort of they're upset about the idea of this bad news and this doomsaying that gets brought up by these two protagonist astronomers. The administration starts questioning the science, saying it's bad timing because of the upcoming midterm elections and basically wanting to ignore the issue altogether and sort of sweep it under the rug. And this is sort of a commentary on the modern era of incompetence that we see. Elections have become a science. There's a roadmap to be followed, there's opinion polls to consider. Every decision in modern democracies gets filtered through the lens of the masses. What will the majority think? How will this impact my ratings and my ability to get re-elected? Surely avoiding an apocalypse is more important than that, but is our system even set up for this? Our democratic systems incentivize short-term thinking to win the next election, the next political office. They don't incentivize the sort of long-term thinking and disaster planning that's needed to avoid catastrophes of this nature. 
Here we also get more commentary on the strangeness of the present moment. Throughout the beginning of this film, there's a big rumor or a headline about some breakup between two celebrities. At one point, the protagonists are going to be on a sort of talk show to break the news about the end of the world to everyone and about the comet. And on that show in the waiting room is one of the celebrities that's in this rumored breakup that's going on. One of the protagonists basically says, hey, I heard about your breakup and I'm really sorry to hear about that. They're just being really nice based on something that they'd heard, a rumor they'd heard through the internet. And at this point, the celebrity looks up and says, mind your own business, you old fuck. Immediately after that, she proceeds to go on broadcast television and basically talk all about the breakup and the relationship in front of an audience of millions of people. So again, we have this weirdness between the real and the unreal. This celebrity is entirely comfortable for her private affairs to be in the news, broadcast to millions of people, and she's happy to discuss things at length in front of an audience. And this is this non-real world, the world of media and appearance. But when it's brought up in a more private setting, there's this revulsion and this recoiling away, this interpersonal weirdness about someone knowing your private business. So what is the rationale here? This has to be a sort of commentary on the times we're living in. It does seem like people are so willing to say anything or share anything on the internet. But then when it comes to the face-to-face interpersonal settings, things get weird. It's like having two identities or two separate realities. We have the public digital identity reality where we can be vicious and say whatever we want. And then we have the private personal identity where we sort of bundle up and keep to ourselves, be nice to everyone and smile. And maybe even sometimes those get reversed. Sometimes it's our digital identity where we have to sort of play nice and go with the narrative and then our private identity where we can actually talk about our opinions and speak up more. And of course, this one, the digital world, this is where we're not actually connecting to people. We're connecting to digital information through our devices. We don't have a community of people to regulate us or to ground us. But more and more, we're being inundated with this idea of constant attention, constant media, constant consumption. Digital media is being integrated into our daily lives more than ever before. The on-camera and off-camera realities are in this weird conflict with one another. It's sort of like two black holes orbiting around each other. Eventually, they're going to merge into one, but what will that look like? What will we be then? So the talk show sections of this movie are themselves fairly interesting. I mean, the whole experience of the protagonist being on these talk shows essentially minimizes the whole purpose of warning everyone about this comet. There are distractions, there are witty comments, they sort of start off with a congratulations on finding a comet, that's so great, statement. And then when told it's going to hit Earth, they respond with, now that's exciting. And one of the hosts asks the astronomers if there's some way they can make it so that the comet lands on his ex-wife's house. Now this whole scene is sort of surreal, and it sort of terrifies me a bit because I could actually see things going down exactly like they're being portrayed here. In this messed up world of ours, everything serious gets downplayed and everything trivial gets played up. Our attention is constantly being captured and misdirected or manipulated. This is the game of the media. This is the game of the digital media era that we're living in. So this is the point where after this sort of televised warning on a talk show, social media starts lighting up to fill up with noise. 
a don't be scared hashtag takes over the internet. People start claiming that there's some government conspiracy around this comet. People start throwing noise out there saying that they've got to use their voice to get the truth out there. And keep in mind that these are people who have no idea what's actually going on. They're not astronomers or scientists. They just want to spout off their opinion and get attention. At this point, once the internet sort of blows up in the movie, the protagonists get brought back into the White House and given an apology for being ignored. They're told that the White House scientists ran the numbers and the protagonists were right. So the president says at this point that they're going to be mobilizing an effort to deflect the comet. Then it comes to light shortly after that that this recent scandal with the president is a primary reason for this change of heart. That the midterms are coming and the comet information is out there. Now the president needs a big show of force type of distraction to boost her falling ratings from this unrelated scandal. So, first it was a scandal distracting the leaders from this apocalyptic event, and now it gets turned around where it's the apocalyptic event itself being used as the distraction from the political scandal. It's just insane. And at the same time, in the movie, we have the head of NASA taking the fall here for her early inaction, saying, I will resign in disgrace first thing tomorrow. And this itself is a crisis of accountability. You have a shill person who's working against the public good, and then when things go wrong, they take the fall. Resignations like this have always bothered me, like, why not admit you made a mistake and then try to rectify it, do everything in your power to set it right? Resigning in this scenario is sort of like saying, yeah, I messed up and I'm not going to be the one to fix it, I'm just bowing out. Farewell. So this whole event in the movie is rapidly politicized this comet impact becomes an opportunity. The end of the world, the apocalypse, becomes a show. They place some hero pilot to fly a space shuttle into space with the intention of nuking this comet to change its trajectory in order order for it to miss Earth. Which is a real scientific idea, the potential of misdirecting or deflecting an asteroid or comet that's on a trajectory to impact Earth. If we do this early enough, that's definitely possible with explosives like nuclear weapons. I don't know that it would work for a 10-kilometer-wide comet that's six months or less from impact, but the basic premise is sound. But the the whole action, the whole effort becomes this political event. The protagonist goes back on this talk show, and the talk show hosts ask, how do we even know there is a comet? Like, the existence of a comet is up for debate somehow. And then on another talk show, the protagonist who discovered the comet, and the comet is named after her, she's asked, how are we supposed to trust you? The comet's got your name. So these are all identifications that there's some conspiracy going on. The second something gets into the public eye, the calls of a conspiracy start coming in. People start questioning narratives and trying to find a narrative that aligns more with their own beliefs, whether it be government lies or corruption or political affiliations, conflicts of interest, whatever it might be. So the president in this movie has a grotesque speech before the launch of this Earth-saving mission. She says, and I quote, Your discovery has led to this mission and to our chance to save Earth. She's positioning it as if the discovery of this comet has been some great triumph. I mean, without knowing about this deadly comet, we wouldn't have this attention-grabbing mission, we wouldn't have this great spectacle, 
this chance to save Earth. As if the Earth being in existential danger is somehow a good thing that should be celebrated, and yet all of this political machinery is being used to say that somehow it is, that somehow this is a great opportunity for humanity. And this brings us to the situation where early on this administration was going along pretending that there was nothing wrong. We're talking about a fictional movie here, not a real-life event, but who knows, you could use these same words for some other things, maybe. And now, this same administration in the film, they're pretending that there's this big, momentous occasion, there's saving the world mission is somehow a great thing for society. In both of these cases, and both of these narratives, the facts remain the same, that a comet is on a collision course with Earth, and if it hits, everyone's screwed. But this example illustrates how an event like this, how factual information can be taken and skewed and spun into a specific narrative and argued about and questioned. Even the gall of a talk show host to question a scientist on, how do we know this thing is real? Later on, this protagonist basically screams on live television. They say, what do you mean how do we know it's real? Because we took a picture of it. We can see it through our telescopes. Just look. But, again, the narrative inevitably changes. Shortly after this grand launch of this mission to deflect the comet, the space shuttle gets turned around and the Earth-saving mission is aborted. And we find out it's because this big corporation, sort of the bad guy of the story, discovers the comet has rare elements on it worth trillions of dollars. And instead of diverting the comet so that it doesn't hit Earth, they decide they want the comet on Earth so that they can utilize its resources. So again, we've changed the narrative, and now it becomes this great opportunity for profit and wealth, and the corporation behind this plot happens to be the largest campaign donor for the current president, so there's this insane conflict of interest here. And it just mirrors the real world where corporations have outsized influence in the realm of politics in so many different ways. And from a media perspective, even, I mean, look at how Apple and Amazon are jumping into the media production and streaming space, funding films and TV shows. Might we potentially see this as a problem? Like, could it potentially be problematic that Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post, for example? And don't get me wrong here, I don't have an opinion either way on this. I'm not saying that it's bad, and that doesn't mean that it's good. I'm just asking the question... As a society, are we all right with this conflict of interest existing? Apple and Amazon are mega-corporations with vested interests in material extraction, labor policies, global trade, manufacturing, tariffs, and so on. The political powers at B can have a huge impact on the profit margins of these two companies. And yet here they are, creating digital media for mass public consumption. And we know that media consumption influences people's politics and ideals and their behaviors. Could this possibly be a problem? And in the movie here, these issues are exacerbated through the lens of an existential threat to humanity. At one point, one of the protagonists goes to visit her parents, and it immediately becomes politics dividing families. Her mother says, Your dad and I are for the jobs that this comet will provide. So we can see the evil tentacles of this big corporation that wants the comet on Earth so that they can profit from it, even if it potentially means doom for humanity. When everything can be politicized, everything is politicized, and then 
all parts of society become politicized. Conspiracy theories and misinformation run rampant through society. One of the protagonists tells another character who's spouting off some conspiratorial idea. She says, The truth is way more depressing. They're not even smart enough to be as evil as you're giving them credit for. And this is the sad thing with this kind of politicization. The powers that be aren't even necessarily doing it from an evil place. The president just wants to stay in power. And this motivates all of the twists and turns of the official government narrative. In the movie, the president is only looking towards what's more beneficial for her to stay in power. And of course she's doing this, because she believes her being in power is best for the nation. Through this lens, even existential threats take a backseat to the primary goal of staying in power. From denial, to spinning it as patriotic, a patriotic opportunity, to then spinning it again as a big boon for society, like in the form of job creation, they aren't necessarily acting maliciously, it's just that their actions end up being malicious to humanity. They're really just playing the game in an optimal way, the game of politics. And this is the exact game that got them to where they are now. So what other game could we possibly expect them to be playing at this point? I mean, if someone spends decades spinning narratives to propel their career forward and then they get rewarded for this behavior by gaining the top office that there is, do we really expect them to somehow become benevolent leaders post-election? Or do we expect them to continue thinking about their own best interests as they had been for the past several decades? Again, we have a TV show scene after the mission is aborted in this new narrative about the trillions of dollars of resources to be injected into the economy once we get our hands on this comet. The TV show hosts again, they say, we've been hearing that there is no comet, or maybe that there is a comet, but it isn't actually a bad thing. Like, can you help us out here? And this is where the one of the protagonists sort of freaks out. He says, we took a picture of it. What else do we need? If we can't agree that a giant comet hurtling towards Earth isn't a good thing, then what the hell has happened to us? We should have deflected this comet when we had the chance, but we didn't do it. Shortly after this, the comet itself becomes visible in the night sky with human eyes. Whereas before this, it could only be seen by telescopes and displayed through a screen. Keep in mind that this screen is our portal into the internet with all of its manipulations and ills for society. So of course, people are already primed with an understanding of what the internet is. It's a battlefield. Seeing a comet on the internet is naturally going to provoke polarization because we're primed for it. Just like any other thing we hear on the internet provokes polarization and interpretation through whichever lens is more convenient or familiar to the audience. And when the comet appears in the night sky and it's no longer just on a screen or an image or a picture or on the internet, it's sort of like a Plato's cave moment. You can't really unsee what you see in the night sky. So Plato's cave is a bit of a thought experiment from the ancient Greeks. Imagine a cave where humans are chained up against a wall with their heads pointed towards the wall and they're prevented from moving. They can't look left or right, they can only look straight ahead at this wall. It's the only thing they can ever see. And what they see displayed on that wall is shadows being reflected either by a fire in the cave that's tended to by guards, or shadows reflected by the sun's light shining in through the cave entrance. 
These humans have only ever seen the shadows on the wall. This is how they've lived their lives, interacting with these shadows. These shadows are the only reality that they've ever known. The idea here with Plato's cave is that if we were to unchain one of these humans and let them wander outside and see the real world, to look up at the real sun, they would be shocked. And upon seeing this real world and discovering that the shadows on the cave wall aren't actually reality itself, that there's some greater, more truer reality out there, if that person went back into the cave and tried to explain this to the other humans that were chained up there with them, the ones who are still staring at the shadows on the wall, it would be an impossible task. The humans who only see the shadows would firmly state that the shadows are reality. They would think this person talking about some greater reality is crazy and is insane. They wouldn't even want to leave the cave. They wouldn't even want to acknowledge that the cave existed in this sort of made-up shadow world. And Plato's point with this allegory is that we are those humans that are shackled up in this cave, and we think that we're experiencing reality when really we're just experiencing these shadows, these reflections of the true reality. And this is sort of what happens when the comet becomes visible in the sky. It's a Plato's cave moment. Everyone who looks up and sees it is suddenly shocked. This thing they've been hearing about on the internet or through the media for months and months is now plainly visible for all to see. And even still, division continues. Illusions continue. On the one side, you have people who are urging other people to look up. They're saying, just look up. Because once you look up, the veracity of the comet's existence becomes undeniable. You can see with your own eyes what the truth is. And then there's the other side, and they have a different chant. They chant, don't look up. They say that the other side wants you to look up because they want you to be afraid. They want to rob you of your freedoms. So they urge their followers to don't look up. Don't look up in the night sky because they don't want you to see the truth. In a sort of self-referential Hollywood moment, there's a in this film, there's a new movie debuting called Total Devastation. And it's about a comet that destroys the Earth in this film, so a fiction within a fiction. It's described as an action movie, a popcorn movie. It's a simulated apocalypse designed to get people's attention. One of the actors being interviewed for this movie, they have a pin on their shirt with both up and down arrows on it. And when the interviewer here asks them about it, they say they have this pin because they're not, they're not in either the don't look up or the look up camp. They say, I'm not political, let's just all get along. I don't believe in looking up, I don't believe in not looking up. He says, this, that's why we made this movie, Total Devastation. This movie's for everyone. This movie is a popcorn movie. It's something everyone can watch, and it won't get politicized. So the movie here, the film Don't Look Up, is commenting on itself by having an action movie within the film about the same topic, just from a very different angle. I personally found Don't Look Up to be a little bit boring, a little bit dull, and that that must be the point. It's a satire that comments on our present society. That's what makes it boring, because it's simultaneously not real, and yet it has real elements in it. It feels almost like reality, apart from the satire. It's not a popcorn movie. It doesn't feature a heroic band of oil drillers that go up to space and save Earth like in that movie Armageddon. 
It's not an exciting movie. It's sort of depressing. So things here start getting pretty multi-layered. First, we have a real existential risk, which is the potential threat of an asteroid or a comet hitting the Earth and causing humanity to go extinct. That's a real-world concern we might have. And then we have our fictionalized stories about such events, apocalyptic films that touch on this subject that sort of simulate what such a catastrophe would look like. And then you have films like Don't Look Up that sort of make fun of those fictionalized heroic accounts of catastrophe and provide a satirical take on the same event. And then included within this satirical film is a replica of a Hollywood blockbuster doomsday movie that we're all so familiar with. All of these moments that blend the real and the unreal make for a surreal experience. A film that's commenting on reality and poking fun at reality while portraying a satirical version of reality never lets you settle into the film as entertainment. Instead, you're kept aware that the film itself is satire. You're aware that what you're watching is unreal, and yet experiencing the feeling that there are real elements to this fiction you're being sold on. On these terms, as a satirical commentary, I think the film is brilliant. And yet, in other ways, it sort of has this feeling that it sort of falls short. And maybe that's because the film is itself a reflection on us in the real world and our own real shortcomings. The film is portraying how we fall short as a society, and so maybe perhaps that critique is unfair. Of course it falls short. Its subject matter is that we, as a society, we fall short as well. In the end, it's amazing how much time is squandered in this movie with bickering and political conflict as opposed to actually taking action against this common threat shared by humanity. People spend more time arguing with each other than they do actually addressing the issue. And it's a depressing tale. The, the people at the helm who ultimately flopped their chance at saving Earth end up escaping on a spaceship. The protagonists, who were sounding the alarm from the beginning, end up dying along with everyone else on Earth who was just too busy fighting amongst themselves rather than mobilizing against the real threat. It's just amazing how everything can be politicized. Even the end of the world becomes another arena for polarization, another battlefield. And it's terrifying to me because, to me, it's not that far-fetched. I mean, the main protagonist says at the end, he says, we really did have everything, didn't we? I mean, when you think about it. And that is what makes existential risks such an important topic, because right now we really do have it all. Humanity has an almost unimaginable potential to build ourselves a future that's worth fighting for. But if we screw it all up and we end up wiping ourselves out before we can claim that future, then all is lost. And this might be one of the greatest crimes against humanity that we could imagine. The idea of squandering the potential of all future generations that could come after us, an unimaginable number of future human beings, if we don't make thoughtful decisions in the present. So, with that analysis complete, I think it's about time we have some kind of orientation to what an existential risk even is. And then I'd like to do an overview of various existential risks that we potentially face as a society and try to parse out which ones are more pressing than others, which ones we need to address, and which ones we can't do anything about. So, what is an existential risk, fundamentally? 
Obviously, a giant comet hitting Earth and wiping out humanity is a very visceral example of what an existential risk is, but this is the blockbuster version of an existential risk. This is the dinosaurs going extinct story we always tell. And there are a lot of other existential risks that aren't nearly as sexy, that aren't custom fit to be on the big screen. As we said in the introduction, at its basic level, an existential risk is an event that results in the extinction of humanity. This can either be in one big sweep where all humans are killed outright, or in the form of a total collapse of civilization from which we might never be able to recover. So I'd like to take a look at three different catastrophic scenarios that we might face. The first and the most likely would be a global catastrophic scenario that causes civilization to collapse. Perhaps the majority of human beings die and a large proportion of the Earth's surface is damaged or destroyed. But in this scenario, enough humans are able to survive and they're able to eventually rebuild and continue the trajectory of civilization. So we have a temporary collapse followed by an eventual rise and rebuilding. This itself wouldn't make it an existential threat. I mean, the catastrophe that caused this event could itself be a potential existential risk, but in this scenario, we've actually survived that apocalypse and were able to rebuild. The second most likely scenario is that civilization collapses to such a point where we can never recover and we can never rebuild. Either a large amount of the Earth is destroyed or damaged and won't support population growth, or we've simply used up all of the available resources and a rebuild is effectively impossible. For example, this could happen if our population collapses to such a point that we lose a lot of our current technology, and then if we get to the point where we're able to actually extract oil again and start um, using internal combustion engines, it would be a problem if all of the readily available oil is already dug up out of the ground and we can't effectively extract it or access it anymore. This would put a limit on the ability to actually rebuild. And last and probably the least likely option is something so catastrophic happens that all humans die in relatively short order. As we can probably see, the last two scenarios are a lot worse than the first. In the first scenario, civilization collapses temporarily and we're eventually able to recover. And maybe this is even along the lines of decades, or it could even be centuries to front a full recovery. The key here is the ability to actually recover. And there is a risk here that the longer a collapse lasts, the more difficult a recovery could become. So if anything, we could potentially invest in some resources in not only preventing existential risks, but also in building mechanisms to speed up any sort of post-collapse recovery. There are a couple of books on this subject that I haven't read, and I would sort of lump them into the prepper category. Preppers really aren't that crazy when you consider the fact that all civilizations that came before us, that we know of, have collapsed. I mean, the Minoans, the Greeks, the Romans, the Persians, multiple civilizations over multiple millennia have seen a total collapse. And these collapses are manageable if we understand that we can recover from them and continue to advance. But in the other two scenarios, humanity loses its future. If we collapse and we can never recover, we'll eventually go extinct. And if something so huge happens to us that it kills everyone, then we're effectively extinct immediately. So let's paint a picture of our potential futures and 
what might be at stake here. So here we're, we're getting into the territory of science fiction right now, but it's conceivable that in what I would call the deep future of humanity, this means a time horizon beyond the idea of just the next few generations, that in this deep future we will eventually expand from Earth to other planets and to other solar systems with habitable planets in them. When thinking about the deep future, we think in terms of centuries and millennia rather than decades, and our success depends on science and technology. Our science will indicate what's possible for us out there. Science tells us now that there are potentially billions of Earth-like planets in our galaxy alone. And there's at least hundreds of billions of other galaxies out there, also with Earth-like planets in them. Now, many of these Earth-like planets won't be habitable by humans without some form of modification, but some of them might be. This is the unknown factor that science is still in the process of figuring out. Technology will be the means to achieve some end. Technology will allow us to traverse between stars to create habitats on other planets and maybe even terraform other planets to make them habitable for humans, for billions of human beings to live comfortably on. And the long-term vision would be something like this. We want to create a civilization that spans multiple planets, multiple solar systems, on which large numbers of humans can live happy, healthy lives, and they can flourish. If Earth is able to support, say, 10 billion humans, then colonizing 10 other Earth-sized planets would potentially support another 100 billion humans, more than 10 times the number of people we have living today. And there's no reason to stop there. In the deep future, it's conceivable that we could colonize hundreds, thousands, or maybe millions of other solar systems. This could result in an almost inconceivable number of human beings coming into existence over the course of the deep future of humanity. Think trillions of people instead of the current billions of people that we have. And even with that, we're only just getting started. The thing is, unless we human beings go extinct or somehow stagnate in our technological development and are never able to leave this planet, this future is inevitable. We can't live on Earth forever, and technology will eventually enable us to expand outwards into the cosmos. Once human beings do inhabit multiple planets, the possibility of extinction declines sharply. So it's also a safety mechanism for us. In, a, in order to enjoy a great sci-fi-esque future, we need to expand out into the cosmos. And the act of doing so also hedges against a planetary catastrophe that might render us extinct. As a multiplanetary species, if one planet gets destroyed by some natural calamity, billions of people could die. But there's a big difference between billions of people dying and all humans dying. And this is formulated by Derek Parfit in his philosophical book, Reasons and Persons. Let's imagine the following three scenarios. In scenario A, we have world peace and 0% of humans die. In scenario B, there's some cataclysmic event and 99% of humans die. And then in scenario C, there's also a cataclysmic event, but 100% of humans die. Derek Parfit here says that most people would agree that option A is far better than options B or option C. But most people also get hung up on the percentages here and say that 
options B and option C are effectively the same, just a 1% difference, right? I mean, what's the difference between 99% of humans dying and 100% of humans dying? The gap between A and the other two options looks a lot bigger. There's effectively a large numerical difference between 0% of humans dying and 99% of humans dying. But in reality, and when considering our long-term future through the lens of existential risks, the difference between option B and option C is actually immense. The 1% of people who survive could form the basis for a civilization that goes on to colonize the stars and build a civilization that lasts billions of years. That is what's at stake here. In his book on existential risks titled The Precipice, philosopher Toby Ord says, and I quote, Our galaxy will remain habitable for an almost unfathomable time. Some of our nearby stars will burn vastly longer than the sun, and each year ten new stars are born. Some individual stars last trillions of years thousands of times longer than our sun, and there will be millions of generations of such stars to follow. This is deep time. If we survive on such a cosmological scale, the present era will seem astonishingly close to the very start of the universe. But we know of nothing that makes such a lifespan impossible or even unrealistic. We need only to get our house in order. I don't think we should discount this vision of the future. Sure, if 99% of humans die, that means 7.8 billion people dying given current population levels, and that's almost 100 times more people than the number who died as a result of the First and Second World Wars combined. That's more than 1,000 times the number of people who died in the Holocaust. This is an almost inconceivable number. Our brains aren't really built to think of this many humans living at once. But there are other numbers that are even more inconceivable. For example, calculating the total number of humans that could exist in the future if we don't go extinct. These calculations are almost pointless in trying to undertake because the numbers are so immense. It's estimated that the total number of humans who have ever lived is in the range of 100 billion people. 7.9 billion of those are alive today. And this has all occurred on one planet, with population constraints, and over just a few hundred thousand years that we've been around. If humanity survives and migrates into the stars, we would have access to all of the resources of the entire cosmos, and hundreds of billions of years, at least, with which to do as we please. Modern humans have been around for maybe 10,000 generations so far. If we don't screw things up and we're able to expand off of this planet, we could potentially be around for tens of billions of generations longer. Not thousands, not millions, billions of generations. This is the analogy. We are the seed. We are the potential. We are the two cells coming together. We are the sperm fertilizing the ovum. We'd be wrong-headed to think that we're the pinnacle of humanity here. We still have a long ways to go. From this one fertilized cell can grow trillions more cells. But as with the development of the embryo, it might be a bumpy road to get there. Toby Ord goes on to say as well, and I quote, Almost all of humanity's life lies in the future. Almost everything of value lies in the future as well. Almost all of the flourishing, almost all of the beauty, 
All of our greatest achievements, our most just societies, our most profound discoveries, all of these things exist in this deep future, if we're able to claim it. So I hope here that I've done a decent job at painting a picture of why existential risk is an important topic. It's important for us in the present, of course, because we don't want the world to end for us, but we also don't want it to end for our children or grandchildren. And it should also be equally important for us when considering the deep future as well. We'll have descendants, and our descendants will also have descendants. Ideally, we don't want the world to end for any of them, right? I, for one, can imagine a better future if we're able to create a world in which all humans can flourish and safeguard our civilization from extinction. Before we can start coming up with the means of safeguarding our future, we should first start by identifying the risks that we do face. And to kick things off, let's look at the asteroid or comet impact risk as identified in the movie, Don't Look Up. In reality, the asteroid or comet threat is the one existential risk that's actually being handled reasonably well today. NASA has been mandated by the Congress of the United States for many years now to scour the solar system looking for dangerous asteroids. And in reality, asteroids too are the main threat here. They're more populous and they're made up of harder material like metals, so an asteroid that's smaller than a comet could potentially carry a bigger punch. Another thing to consider is that comets are generally pretty easy to spot. Even the movie's idea of a killer comet that's 10 kilometers wide and only having six months of warning is a bit far-fetched. It takes us six months to get to Mars with modern spacecraft. A comet that size would probably have a tail large enough that we'd be able to spot it out by Jupiter or Saturn with relative ease, at least. Could give us probably five years of warning before it was going to cross paths with Earth. The only caveat to this is that there are some really dark comets out there that have had their icy material, their icy outer shell, blown off of them already by repeated trips around the sun. And the risk here would be detecting one of these darker comets. But so far, from what we've seen, it it does seem like this is a relatively small number in the total population of comets that are actually really dark and difficult to see. So at least for now, I'm going to sidestep away from the comets topic and focus on the asteroid threat that we face. NASA has been tracking data on all known near-Earth objects that we've identified so far, and as of the time of recording this, they're tracking around 28,000 near-Earth objects, most of these asteroids that are orbiting the Sun. It's been estimated that there are less than 1,000 asteroids that are larger than one kilometer in diameter. These would be the planet-killer asteroids that could potentially destroy most of the life on Earth, or at least large portions of it, and possibly lead to humans going extinct. So far, NASA has found about 90-plus percent of these kilometer-plus asteroids in our solar system, and none of them are of any particular concern. None of them are going to be impacting Earth anytime soon. So there are probably less than 10% of the total number of asteroids in this group that are yet to be discovered. We don't know whether any of them would pose a risk at this point, but we could infer that if any of these one kilometer plus asteroids were to pose a risk to us, in all probability we would have detected it in the 885 or so that we've found so far. It would be really bad luck if we've detected 90 plus percent and all of them are fine, but then the the bad luck asteroid is in that undiscovered 10% so far. 
So there is still a little bit of a risk here with the kilometer plus asteroids, particularly ones that might be coming at us from odd angles or behind the sun. But NASA's doing a lot of work to mitigate this, and we've got new telescopes and whatnot coming on all the time that are going to be able to find more and more of these and track them to make sure we're not in trouble. Asteroids that are one kilometer or larger represent our biggest space-based threat in terms of existential risks. And luckily, this is also the population of asteroids that we're most capable of keeping tabs on, so our risk here is being mitigated fairly well. In addition to these, there's about another 10,000 near-Earth objects being tracked that are between 100 meters and up to 1 kilometer in diameter. So this is the size that could cause some significant regional devastation. In the mid-ranges, an asteroid that's several hundred meters in diameter could take out part of or an entire continent, even. Size isn't the only factor here. Density and velocity are also really important when determining the amount of damage one of these space rocks could cause. But anything in the range of a 20-story building or bigger could be pretty bad news on a regional basis. It won't be an existential threat to humanity, but it'll definitely ruin some people's days. So the majority of near-Earth objects being tracked are actually in this sub-100 meter range. Some of these could be called city killers and could cause significant damage within a few hundred square kilometers. Others are small enough that they're more likely to explode in the atmosphere and can cause an airburst, as has happened in Russia in recent years. So Russia is actually famous for two different airbursts. Most recently, we had the Chelyabinsk meteor in 2013 that exploded over a Russian town and caused a decent amount of damage. There were about 1,500 people that had some minor injuries and then thousands of buildings that took on some kind of damage. But nothing catastrophic happened here. This was from an estimated 20 meter in diameter asteroid, so about the diameter of two school buses stacked back to back. On the other hand is also the 1908 Tunguska event that also occurred in remote Russia in Siberia, and this leveled something like 2,000 square kilometers of forest with another airburst. The trees were leveled, but no serious damage occurred because there wasn't much around, really. Um... This particular asteroid was estimated to be about 60 meters in diameter, and if this one had exploded over a city, then the city would have been devastated. Most buildings probably would have collapsed and been destroyed, potentially leading to significant numbers of deaths. But here we are getting away a bit from the existential risk part of the asteroid equation. The asteroid distribution pattern follows a size chart. There are many more small asteroids that pose no risks, a few bigger asteroids that pose risks to smaller regions of Earth, and then a relatively small number of really big asteroids that would devastate a large percentage or the entirety of Earth's surface. We're also reasonably well prepared with a few hypothetical deflection strategies that we could use, and the more time we have available to us, the easier a deflection would actually be. We've also got a lot of new telescopes coming online in the coming years that are designed to better detect asteroids, both smaller, less dangerous ones, as well as better monitoring for any bigger ones that we haven't yet detected. A potential unseen risk that we realized a few years ago was when that interstellar asteroid Oumuamua came into play. So far, our efforts have been focused on objects orbiting the sun, we haven't been focusing on detecting objects coming from outside of the solar system at awkward angles. There is potential here that a dangerous interstellar asteroid could cross Earth's path, 
although this is a smaller chance than a near-Earth asteroid, it is a possibility. And since interstellar objects can be moving significantly faster than ones within our solar system, they would pack a bigger punch. A smaller, fast-moving asteroid could be more deadly than a larger asteroid that's moving slower. The solution to this, though, is the same as with other asteroids. We just need better monitoring and better detection technology, which fortunately is already on its way. So the risks with asteroids are also twofold. It's not just the impact itself that could be really deadly. A really big asteroid impact could cause massive shockwaves and tsunamis that perhaps kill a large number of the human population really quickly, depending on where it hits. But on the opposite side of the Earth from the asteroid impact will be a bit of a safe zone. It would probably then be bombarded by falling debris and whatnot that had been launched into orbit in the initial impact, but for the most part, the other side of the Earth will get away from the worst effects of the immediate blast zone anyways. According to William Napier in the book Global Catastrophic Risks, he says, and I quote, Impacts approaching n times ferocity probably begin at a million or two megatons of TNT equivalent, corresponding to the impact of bodies a kilometer or so across. Blast and earthquake devastation are now at least continental in scale, while direct radiation from the rising fireball peaking at 100 kilometers in altitude is limited to a range of 1,000 kilometers by the curvature of the Earth, ballistic energy would throw hot ash to the top of the atmosphere, whence it would spread globally. Sunlight would be cut off, and food chains would collapse. So this is part of the problem with a big impact. Even if the impact of a giant asteroid doesn't kill everyone directly, it can still potentially cause a scenario where the sun gets blocked, global temperatures plummet, photosynthesis breaks down, and our agriculture systems fail. The result here would be mass starvation on a global scale, maybe billions of people dying depending how bad it was. But this is not an existential risk. While we might lose a lot of people here, it doesn't seem like a smaller asteroid in the one kilometer range would be enough to render humanity extinct. For that, I think it would take something a little bit bigger. And as we'll see when we start to look at a couple of these other risks, the risk of the sun being blocked out by dust and debris in the atmosphere is one of the bigger issues we might face when it comes to existential risks more generally. So while we're on the topic of natural existential risks, which an asteroid or comet impact would be, I want to go through the list of other potential existential risks that are coming at us from natural sources. The next one I want to look at is the eruption of a supervolcano. In his book, The Ends of the World, Peter Brennan goes into the evidence that the five mass extinctions in Earth's history all correspond with a period of enhanced volcanic activity leading up to the actual extinction event. And a mass extinction is defined as a period where the majority of species on the Earth die out, so at least 50% of species going extinct. That's happened five times in Earth's history. In this book, Brannon hypothesizes that the asteroid impact that's known to have brought about the mass extinction of the dinosaurs some 65 million years ago is also correlated with a massive volcanic eruption on the other side of the Earth in modern India. The amount of soot and debris ejected into the atmosphere causes global temperatures to plummet, plants to die off, and all large animals to die off too. While the asteroid is commonly pointed to as the dinosaur killer, it might have been a double whammy. A 10-kilometer asteroid impact scorching one side of the planet, 
and then supervolcanic eruptions killing off the rest through massive climate shifts. Reading a quote from Peter Brannan in Ends of the World, I quote, So what would it take to wipe out the dinosaurs, the most dominant animal group on land in the history of the planet and one that ruled Earth for 136 million years? Well, this might do. A climate that was already deteriorating at the end of the Cretaceous, with greenhouse heat waves punctuated by brief and bitter winters, interrupted by an asteroid the size of San Francisco plowing through the atmosphere in a second, creating Mordor in Mexico, incinerating everything around, sending tsunamis hundreds of miles inland over distant shores, collapsing the eastern seaboard, bringing in an age of darkness, falling plankton blooms, foundering food webs, and acid rain. And then, on the other side of the world, while the mid-ocean ridges grumbled at the bottom of the ocean, the earth opened up, as it has in only a few catastrophic chapters previously in its history, drowning western India in fire, acidifying the oceans, and bringing punishing warmth to the world for thousands of years. Of course, this remains a speculative sketch. The fact is we still have no idea what the last days of the dinosaurs were like. The only thing we know is that they were unspeakably awful. So the enemy here with a super eruption on this scale isn't lava from a volcano, but rather the ash and material that gets released into the atmosphere by a volcanic eruption. With enough ash launched into the atmosphere, the sun can get blocked out. This happened most recently in 1816, which was known as the year without a summer, and you can look this up in the history books. And this occurred with a relatively minor eruption when compared to the larger-scale eruptions we see in the geological record. In April of 1815, Mount Tambora in Indonesia exploded. Thousands of people living on the island of Sumbawa were killed instantly. In his book, Morality, Foresight, and Human Flourishing, Phil Torres illustrates what happened next. And I quote, The worst effects were those observed across the Northern Hemisphere a year later, during the summer of 1816. Throughout Europe, the United States, and Asia, unusually cold weather ruined the year's crops, leading to widespread food shortages. In France, this resulted in rioting. In Ireland, where rain fell for eight weeks without a hiatus, famine and malnutrition brought an outbreak of typhus that killed thousands. In Bengal, an epidemic of cholera emerged that, after spreading around the globe, caused tens of millions of deaths. In China, people starved and some parents even killed their children out of mercy. And in the United States, ice-covered lakes and snow-blanketed regions of the East Coast as far south as Virginia during June and July. If that doesn't sound apocalyptic, I don't know what does. And yet that wasn't even the worst volcanic eruption we could expect to see at some point in our future. On the Volcanic Explosivity Index, Tambora rated a 7. The highest possible rating on this index is an 8. But a volcano with an explosivity of 8 is in the supervolcano territory. And such a volcano can emit hundreds of times more ash than the Tambora eruption did. And even more problematically than the volume is that the ash from a supervolcano gets launched even higher into the atmosphere, where it can condense into aerosols that remain in the stratosphere for years or even decades. This is known to have happened about 75,000 years ago in the Toba supereruption, which also took place in Indonesia. So I need to make a note to myself at this point to steer clear of Indonesia if I'm concerned about apocalyptic supereruptions. 
Anyways, this Toba super eruption is thought to have plummeted global temperatures by several degrees, darkened the skies, and caused weather patterns to change. Up to three quarters of plant species in the northern hemisphere went extinct in what would have been a 10-year volcanic winter. This destruction of food sources in plants would have been a cascading effect through the ecosystems across the planet. It's thought that the population of humans at this time plummeted to a bottleneck of only a few thousand breeding individuals, perhaps the closest we've ever come to extinction as a species. Somehow, we managed to scrape by and continue. But if such an event were to happen again, a decade-long volcanic winter that stifles photosynthesis and causes global crop failure on an unprecedented scale, how confident would we be in our ability to survive and rebound as a civilization? The problem is also that supervolcanoes causing this amount of cooling could be twice as likely to occur as an asteroid impact causing a similar level of global cooling. From the geological record, we might expect one every 50,000 years or so. And the last one was over 75,000 years ago, so you might say that we're due for a supervolcano at any point now. A big issue we face with mitigating supervolcanic eruptions are that they're more difficult to predict and prevent than asteroids or comets. We can see an asteroid coming at us from across the solar system, but we can't readily predict when a volcano is about to explode with huge injections of ash into the atmosphere. Now, we do know that there's a gigantic supervolcano caldera in Yellowstone, in Yellowstone National Park in the United States. And this is the largest volcanic system in the world. It ranks as a supervolcano. The Yellowstone caldera has had three supervolcanic eruptions over the past two million years. And we have no idea when it might erupt next. Nor do we know how much of a warning we might even have. While dust and debris kicked into the atmosphere by an asteroid impact is rocky in nature and doesn't stay in the air for excessively long periods, though it still does stay in there long enough to cause some climate disruptions, volcanoes are a bigger threat in terms of global climate disruption because the sulfuric ash is able to stay in the air much longer, particularly when it's aerosolized. This means that the volcanic winter effect from a supervolcano might be a much bigger risk than the climate disruption from a large asteroid though the asteroid impact itself could be a bigger problem in the short term depending on how big it is and where it hits and where you happen to be located. So I want to jump over to the next naturally occurring risk I want to look at. For the first one, we looked at asteroid impacts. The second one, we looked at supervolcanoes here on Earth. We've got a total of seven I want to look at before ending this, so right now we're going to look at number three. The third naturally occurring risk, and by the way, these are going to get more and more rare as we go, the third one is an interstellar object of any kind interacting with our solar system in bad ways. And by that I mean gravitational disruptions of some kind from an object, a large object, coming close enough to our solar system to cause these gravitational disruptions. And this is where comets do come into play. So almost every comet in our solar system is currently rotating around our solar system in the outskirts of our solar system in what's called the Oort cloud. And the Oort cloud contains maybe something like 100 billion comets in extremely slow and elongated orbits. And these are comets that, for the most part, never come into the inner solar system. They mostly stay in the outskirts and orbit the sun at an extreme distance from Earth, where they remain frozen. Now, it's possible that a 
a planet or a star-sized interstellar object could come close enough to the solar system that it disrupts this cloud of comets around us, disrupts their natural orbits, and this could cause them to fall into the inner solar system, sort of bombarding us like, I mean, imagine a hailstorm of comets coming at us. And this in itself would make comet impacts much more likely if we've got more comets being hurled into the inner solar system where Earth is orbiting, that makes things more risky for us. Now there are a couple different types of objects that could cause a disruption like this. Um, the first is something called a rogue planet. So a rogue planet is a planet that is not attached to any other star. So it could be a planet that's being ejected from its solar system and roaming freely through the galaxy. The problem with a rogue planet is that it's dark and we won't see it coming. It's not easy to spot planets from super far away, especially when you're talking about interstellar distances. So it's unlikely that we would see a rogue planet coming until it starts disrupting things in the outer solar system. We might suddenly see more comets coming into the inner solar system than we're used to seeing, and that could tip us off. Or if it's on a particularly steep trajectory into our solar system, we could even have a rogue planet coming into the solar system and disrupting the orbits of other planets. Though this does seem fairly unlikely for a, a rogue planet to be large enough to cause extreme havoc in our solar system, it is a possibility. Another possibility for something that would be difficult to spot would be a brown dwarf. Now this is an object that's large enough that it's almost the mass of a star, but it's not quite big enough to become a star. It's in that sort of middle range between a, a very large planet, talking larger than Jupiter, between a very large planet and a very small star. So something in the mass of a brown dwarf would be really hard for us to see in advance, and it could have a really big effect on the orbits of the Oort cloud objects like comets, or even other planets. I mean, we're talking an object that's far larger than Jupiter, potentially having a close encounter with our solar system. And if an object like that were to disrupt the solar system and the orbits of our existing planets, it's possible that Earth or some other planet could actually get ejected from our solar system by one of these bigger objects causing these gravitational disruptions. It's also likely that there's billions of brown dwarfs free-floating through our galaxy that we're not really able to see because they're so dark, and yet they're big enough that their gravitational effects are almost on the level of a, a star. And in addition to rogue planets and brown dwarfs, we also have the stars. So a star would be something that we actually could see, and we do know that in the past, our solar system has had close encounters with other stars where they've come within the Oort cloud or even bumped up against it. And we do have models to show that this will inevitably happen again in the future, probably within the next 100,000 years or a million years or so. We're going to have another close encounter with another star that will disrupt the Oort cloud. Luckily, it's just not something that's going to be happening anytime soon. And the final type of object that could cause some gravitational disruptions and maybe send comets hurtling towards us or disrupt some planetary orbits would be a small black hole, or what's called a primordial black hole. Now most black holes being created at this stage in the universe's evolution are stellar-sized objects. They're going to be very large stars that collapse in order to form a black hole. But a small primordial black hole would be something that would have formed around the time of the Big Bang, and these could be very small objects. We're talking objects that could have the mass of an entire planet, but be as small as a football, because the, the mass of a black hole is so incredibly large, it'll be incredibly compact. And these kinds of things would be impossible to spot. The only way we'd be able to see them is through gravitational anomalies. 
And with smaller massed objects like planet size, we might not even be able to detect or see those anomalies. Now, it is even possible, given some estimates, that there could be more free-floating black holes in the galaxy than there are rogue planets or brown dwarfs, meaning that the chances of our sun capturing a primordial black hole is actually greater than the chance of it capturing a roaming planet. And this one is particularly difficult to deal with, sort of like how we wouldn't be able to see a planet disrupting the Oort cloud, we definitely wouldn't be able to see a primordial black hole disrupting the Oort cloud until it had already happened. There is actually a hypothesis right now that we could already have a primordial black hole in our outer solar system orbiting the sun. This is actually a proposed explanation for the Planet 9 search that's turned up nothing. Based on the orbital disruptions we have seen in the outer solar system, astronomers are very confident that there is a planetary mass object out in the outer solar system somewhere that we haven't yet discovered, and they've done a lot of calculations to approximate approximately where they would expect to find such an object, and despite years of searching, they've found absolutely nothing. The implications of this are either that our theory of gravity or the calculations being done are somehow wrong or incorrect, or that there's something out there with a planetary mass that we haven't yet detected. That's where the idea that it could be a planetary massed primordial black hole orbiting in the outer solar system. Given the difficulty of proving that these things even exist, I mean, we've never seen a primordial black hole yet, they're just hypothetical objects, this is still up for a big debate. So adding it all up, it does present a fair amount of existential risk. We have um, rogue planets, we have brown dwarfs, we have other stars in the galaxy, and possibly primordial black holes all floating through the galaxy at all times, potentially interacting with other solar systems like ours. And if either of these objects disrupts the Oort cloud or ventures further into our solar system to cause more disruptions to the actual planets, that could be a big issue. Fortunately, this is on a larger timescale than our supervolcano and asteroid impact scenarios. I mean, the worst case scenario, apart from a comet colliding with Earth, would be Earth getting ejected from the solar system through one of these gravitational disruptions. It's a very small chance, but it is possible if Earth's orbit were to be slowed down, we could fall into the sun, or if we get sped up, we could be ejected. Either of those things would be really bad for the future of life and the future of humanity on this planet. So moving along to the fourth natural existential risk on my list, we have supernovas and gamma-ray bursts. So according to Amon Dar from the Global Catastrophic Risks book, it's estimated that a supernova explosion would have to be within 30 to 50 light-years of Earth to cause any significant disruption. And this only happens once every billion or so years. Further, luckily, we, we can monitor for this by being aware of our stellar neighbors. As of yet, we have had no specific supernova risks nearby that we've identified, though the solar system will eventually be moving into a more high-density region of the galaxy as it completes its orbits and this will give more opportunity for close stellar explosions and supernovas, as well as for disruptions of the Oort cloud. So as of now, we can safely say that a supernova explosion is not a big existential risk, but we would expect to encounter one of these in the far, far future of the Earth. And then we also mentioned gamma-ray bursts. Now, these are extremely high-energy bursts from powerful sources like supernovas or hypernovas, a supernova will explode in a radius and impact things within a few light years of it, whereas a gamma ray burst is actually a focused beam that can shoot across the galaxy, 
at extremely long ranges and high energies and have caused significant damage to whatever ends up in its path in terms of radiation and heavy, heavy particles bombarding that planetary body. So again, according to Amandar, he's estimating that a gamma-ray burst pointing towards us within our own galaxy would happen every 130 million years or so. And a gamma-ray burst within 25,000 light-years or so would have enough energy to wipe out most species on Earth and cause significant damage to the atmosphere, to our ozone, and to most living things that are existing on the surface when it hits us. So strangely enough, the rate of events, once every 130 million years or so, that is consistent with the pattern of mass extinctions that we've seen on Earth from the archaeological, or sorry, from the geological record. We've experienced a mass extinction killing the majority of species on Earth, on average, once every 100 million years or so over the past half billion years. While it's unlikely that gamma-ray bursts are the main source of that type of disruption, it could be something that contributed in some way to any of the mass extinctions we might have seen in the past. So both supernovas and gamma-ray bursts are potentially very dangerous events, but not necessarily likely to happen anytime soon. They would have a very large impact if they did happen, but they're not very likely to happen and there's not much we can do about them. For a supernova to cause serious damage, we would have to be in its general vicinity at the wrong time. For gamma rays, we just have to get unlucky enough to have a beam pointed in our direction at the time that it happens to be sent our way. So kind of like being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And with these risks, there isn't any mitigation we can do here other than spreading into the galaxy. If we stay on Earth for the next billion years, it's inevitable that we're going to get close to a supernova that causes some extreme problems for us. It's inevitable that we'll have a gamma-ray burst pointed directly at us that causes some serious damage to our planet and our biosphere. The only mitigation strategy we have is to expand further into the galaxy to spread out a little bit, so that when big calamitous events like this do happen to us, we might lose some segments of humanity, but some of us will survive, or lots of us will survive to go on and live another day. So the next sort of natural risk I want to look at is sort of a, a ticking clock, and it's not the type of risk that happens at random, it's one that we know is going to be happening in the future given enough time. And that's the problem of increased solar radiation or solar flux. So ever since our sun came into being about 5 billion years ago, it's been getting brighter and brighter as time goes on. Over time, the sun's brightness will continue to increase by about 1% or so every 100 million years. And the Earth has a long and storied history of being impacted by fluctuations in solar radiation. So in the early days of Earth, we were actually covered in ice several times. It was a snowball Earth from which we almost didn't recover because solar flux was so low and we didn't have many greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. There wasn't enough warmth to keep the planet from freezing over. Through a mix of probably volcanoes and maybe asteroid impacts and increasing solar radiation, we eventually came out of that snowball Earth phase to get into a period of relative climate stability, if you could call it that. The trick with our climate balance is that we need enough carbon in the atmosphere to allow photosynthesis to continue happening, but not so much that the planet heats up beyond control, which is what would have happened during times of geological activity where we had large amounts of carbon ejected into the atmosphere. For as long as human civilization has been around, we've actually been seeing a period of increased stellar activity for the last several thousand years, a period of relative climate stability. Without human emissions at this point, we're actually closer to being too cold than we are to being too hot. 
Without human emissions being added to the picture, we might be entering another ice age in the near future, with glaciers covering large portions of the northern hemisphere and making habitation there impossible. So at this point, we could argue that human greenhouse gas emissions have been a net positive, at least for preventing ice sheets from covering a huge percentage of the northern hemisphere of the planet for another few millennia. When it comes to climate and glaciation, there really isn't any equilibrium here. Glaciers are either going to be melting or they're going to be growing, and different regions can be impacted differently at different times. We might have decades of shrinkage followed by a decade of growth. The idea of freezing the Earth at a point in time is naive and not possible. We have enough carbon in the atmosphere now from our own emissions that we've locked in a certain amount of warming. Over time, though, solar radiation degrades this carbon dioxide, and any equilibrium we do find will eventually be altered when the sun starts shining brighter as the years go on. In the future, we'll have more solar radiation coming at us so that more carbon dioxide gets degraded faster. With solar intensity increasing about 1% every 100 million years or so, as time goes on, the longer we stay on this planet, the more carbon is going to be destroyed and degraded from the atmosphere. In the long-term future of Earth, our problem will actually be not enough carbon in the atmosphere rather than too much. And at that point, when the sun is putting out more radiation, that's going to make the Earth hotter, so, so adding more carbon dioxide will just make the Earth even hotter. Unless volcanism helps replenish the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, we could actually reach a stage where carbon levels in the atmosphere drop so low that photosynthesis becomes impossible. With all that said, knowing that the future of the planet is that we're going to be running out of carbon and photosynthesis could break down unless we're somehow artificially pumping CO2 in the atmosphere, but not too much because then it's going to be too hot for us, I mean, it's probably in our best interest that we vacate the Earth within a few hundred million years at the latest. Unless we can figure out some kind of geoengineering strategy in the long term to maintain Earth's habitability as the sun gets more intense, I think our future is inevitably to move outwards into the galaxy. According to Toby Ord from The Precipice, and I quote, Without the carbon dioxide from volcanoes, scientists estimate that in about 800 million years, photosynthesis will become impossible in 97% of plants, causing an extreme mass extinction. So assuming human beings are even around in several hundred million years from now, and by then hopefully we're smart enough to have moved to other planets elsewhere in the galaxy as well to have spread our civilization a little bit into the stars, because Earth is not going to be habitable forever and we're eventually going to see mass extinctions coming about as carbon dioxide levels plummet and solar radiation increases. The next one I want to look at is not so much a risk, but another inevitability. It's when the sun eventually enters its red giant phase. And this is expected to happen about 5 billion years from now. So we do know that the Earth will likely be uninhabitable for life by 5 billion years in the future, but at that point, our entire solar system is actually going to be threatened during the red giant phase of the sun. So in about 5 billion years, our sun will have burned up most of its hydrogen fuel, and will then start burning helium and other heavier elements. When it switches to this new mode, the sun will become significantly larger than it is now. It will actually expand perhaps as far out as the current orbit of the Earth, meaning that Earth would be completely scorched and possibly even swallowed by our own sun. The only way to survive the solar system at this point would be to exist somewhere in the outer solar system, maybe on the moons of Saturn or Jupiter or beyond. But ideally, by then, we will have already colonized other solar systems as well, so we can sort of move out as the sun enters this unstable red giant phase. 
And again, we have 5 billion years to do that, so hopefully we can get our acts together by then. And the final of the natural risks I want to look at is the inevitable end of the universe as we know it. In all probability, this will come about as a big freeze or the heat death of the universe. And the heat death of the universe isn't going to be happening for more than trillions of years. It's far enough in the future that the first 14 billion years of the universe's existence is just going to look like a blip by the time we get there. And then the alternative to the big freeze or the heat death of the universe is called a big crunch scenario. And this is where the universe eventually collapses in on itself through gravitational momentum. For the time being, we're fairly certain that the universe is going to end in the heat death scenario because the rate of expansion in the universe is only increasing. As time goes on, we're expecting to see the universe expand further and further until all of the matter in the universe is so far apart that nothing really exists. We reach, we approach the background temperature of the universe. Um, we're expecting even black holes themselves to evaporate over given enough, long enough timescales. Eventually, the universe will just be composed of free-floating particles, and even those particles themselves will eventually decay back into the initial building blocks of the universe. But there's also the possibility that the accelerating expansion of the universe is an illusion, or that it will slow down or reverse. Perhaps if we start having the expansion of the universe slow down over time, we'll eventually see the expansion grind to a halt. And from there, there would be enough gravity in the center of the universe to start pulling everything back in, to start pulling galaxies and everything else in the universe back into the center. That's the scenario where we collapse to the center of the universe, sort of the reverse of a Big Bang where everything explodes from a single point and expands outwards. In the Big Crunch scenario, we're actually all falling back into the center of the universe and collapsing to a single point. But again, these are all events that aren't going to happen for such a long period of time that they're not worth talking about, except, except as I'm talking about them here in passing. So that's the total stock of our natural existential risk register. And all of these natural risks are fairly predictable. The worse they are, the less frequent they are. We're more likely to experience a non-existential catastrophe before we experience a real existential one. For example, a supervolcano that causes mass starvation but doesn't kill everyone, or an asteroid impact that takes out a region of the Earth but doesn't kill us all. Or a solar flare coming from our sun that causes some disruption here on the surface of the Earth but doesn't kill us all like a gamma-ray burst or a nearby supernova could potentially do. Also, only a few of these are near-term existential risks. An asteroid impact or a supervolcano could happen rapidly but aren't very likely. An Oort cloud disruption from a larger object, we'd probably have some notice. We'd see the comets flinging by us or flinging in our general direction. With a gamma ray burst, though, we could just be one day going along fine and then suddenly we're doomed. These are sort of the big four natural risks. The big four, I would say, are asteroid impacts, a supervolcano eruption, disruption of the Oort cloud and bombardment by comets, or a supernova or gamma ray burst. The other three, the increasing solar radiation over time, the sun's eventual red giant phase, and the eventual end of the universe, these are all far-flung events that represent milestones more than anything. They tell us that we eventually need to expand into the cosmos in order to survive. By the time solar radiation increases to the point of causing mass extinctions, we best have left this planet. By the time our sun forms into a red giant, we best have left the solar system. And by the time the universe comes to an end, well, 
I guess we just got to be prepared for that in some way. The thing with all of these natural risks, though, is that over a long enough time scale, they are all inevitable. If we don't do anything to mitigate or prepare for them, then given enough time, one of these existential catastrophes will happen. We're just lucky that in most cases we have quite a lot of time to prepare, so we should use that time. So I'm going to cut off this episode right here and actually call it part one. And for part two, we'll be looking at the seven anthropogenic or human-caused existential risks, which, according to Toby Ord in his book The Precipice, he says we're 1,000 times more likely to go extinct from a human-caused existential risk as we are from a naturally-caused one. So that will form the basis of the next episode, discussing the seven human-caused existential risks. And then I'll also discuss some hypothetical existential risks that definitely aren't certainties, but things that we definitely can't rule out at this stage either. So I'd also like to invite anyone listening to this to engage in some discussion about these existential risks. You can visit us at our Patreon page or through the website at badphilosopher.com podcast. And feel free to leave a question or a comment, and I'll respond to you, and I'll also respond on an upcoming companion podcast episode. So the companion podcast is weekly bonus content for paying members at the $5 tier or above. Anyone in this tier gets access to this extra podcast episode where basically I do a recap of the latest podcast episode, I answer or respond to any questions or comments, and then I also provide some additional follow-up thoughts from what was discussed in the last episode and review how things went. Thanks everyone for listening, and I'll see you on the next one.